We're going to continue on in our survey of the New Testament. So a survey is just means we're kind of hitting and missing all the way through it. So uh, we're, we're picking on, the, you know, we're trying to pick up some of the important ideas and concepts throughout uh, the entire New Testament. And we're on, this is our 14th lesson in the New Testament survey. We're doing this kind of... Uh, at a slightly different pace than they would be doing in our Bible Institute. We, have a do, uh, we do have a Bible Institute. Well, we were at 700 students, so uh, that's pretty cool. All over the world, we add to that every week. That's kind of fun. You can join up anytime you'd like. If you want to get a Bible degree, you certainly can. It's all free. You can earn an associate's degree or a bachelor's degree in ministry. Just curious, for those of you here, how many of you that are here have completed an associate's degree with me? Raise your hands, almost, there you go. How about bachelor's degrees? There we go, look in the back, very cool, see? All right, can be done, worth having. Or you can just audit classes and learn. We should always be learning, I think, it's a big part of uh, everything we do. All right, so we are sort of in the middle of John chapter 7, and uh, we're going to pick up the action here in verse 37 in just a moment. But uh, let me tell you what's going on. So in verse 37, they're actually celebrating a feast called Tabernacles. And Tabernacles is one of seven feasts that the Israelites uh, celebrated every year. If you ever get a chance, if you haven't been with that study, through that study with me before, you should look in Leviticus 23. We did it uh, not that long ago, a year and a half ago maybe, um, where the seven feasts are listed. And the seven feasts are Passover, unleavened bread, First fruits, Pentecost, trumpets, atonement, and tabernacles. Each one has a significant meaning, particularly to the um, Israelites. And they knew when they were going to fall throughout the year. And they had lots of different signs that got them ready for that. That occurred uh, naturally. Uh, certain plants bloomed at certain times, certain moon phases. Um, they couldn't miss it, mostly because they needed to count back from that, the one that was from atonement. Because if they didn't celebrate atonement on the right day, they were kicked out. How about that for a little pressure? So they got the days right. But uh, the other thing about the seven feasts, which are fascinating, is that I had to sit down. Sorry. My, I realized my legs were tired. We've been busy all day, and I'm sitting down. Jesus often sat to teach, sat and taught, though, so it's okay, I think. There's some precedent for it where it's all right. So anyway, the seven feasts are really cool because Jesus has fulfilled prophetically the first three, the Holy Spirit, the fourth one. So because of the timing and the dates, Passover, Unleavened Bread, and First Fruits, uh, those three feasts all happen in the same weekend, basically. And uh, Jesus hit them perfectly with his, uh, with his death and his resurrection. And so... Um, Passover celebrated when it was supposed to, and Jesus was the Passover lamb. Unleavened bread is the picture of his body broken, perfect to the day on the cross. First fruits was uh, the resurrection uh, when he was resurrected, and it was the very first um, early harvest. And it's very cool if you read in Matthew 7, there's some people that pop out of the graves when Jesus is resurrected. Some holy people, it says, pop up, and that's part of this small first harvest. Very cool when that happens. And then 50 days after that, Pentecost happens and the Holy Spirit comes and Pentecost is 
the second harvest of the season. It's not the largest one, but it's the next harvest. And um, if you remember on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes and Peter preaches and thousands, 3,000 are added to that church, men plus women and children. So that's a celebration of that perfectly to the day fulfilled prophetically. The next in line is trumpets, and we're waiting for trumpets. And trumpets happens, the trumpet is blown at the end of the harvest season. So we're in the big harvest now, and you know what that harvest is. People are being added to the kingdom, and when, uh, when that harvest time is over, trumpet will sound, Jesus will come back, atonement and tabernacles happen just like that, and that's the picture prophetically. So um, we know that trumpets is going to happen with confidence because the first four happened perfectly. So we're just, and we don't know how long the harvest season is, but Jesus does, and he's going he's gonna to come back when he's ready. And there's other um, amazing things that tie into that trumpet sounding in, coming back. It ties into the whole, um, uh, the groom coming back for the bride and having made prepared a place. All those things tie in. So we're all uh, waiting that one. But we're waiting, staying busy, because that's what we're supposed to do. So trumpet is coming. So anyway, in John 7, they're celebrating tabernacles, great big joyous celebration that would happen. Uh, and on the last day, it would go on uh, seven days, and each day they would go down and they would bring water in, and water was poured out. Uh, and while they were doing that, they would be reciting the Psalms, the Hallel Psalms, which are Psalms 113 through 118. And uh, those are great psalms, and you should, you should be aware of those psalms. Anyway, they're celebrating that, and they would be sung, those psalms. And at the highlight, this water would be poured, and it was a massive celebration. So that's what's happening in John seven thirty seven. On the last and greatest day of the feast, tabernacles, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So there, it's a big picture of um, the, Jesus fulfilling these things, the Holy Spirit coming. Throughout the Scripture, you see Jesus uh, says that if you come to him, you're never thirsty or hungry again, spiritually, uh, is what he's talking about there, because he quenches those things for us with his Spirit. So interesting stuff. If you continue reading in John 7, another interesting thing happens in verses 50 and 51. See, now I can say that about every verse, right? Something interesting happens like every verse in Scripture, but I'm surveying it. Uh, our, our friend Nicodemus shows up in John 7 again. And uh, Nicodemus, it says in verse 50, who had gone to Jesus earlier and was one of their own number, one of the Pharisees, does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he's doing. So if you remember in John 3, we looked at this, Nicodemus went to Jesus in the night, and the whole discussion then happened about being born again, spiritually born, born anew, and why it was so important. And uh, so Nicodemus is there, but he snuck in at night, making sure nobody would see him. Well, now the Pharisees are starting to gang up on Jesus, and they want him killed. Nicodemus speaks up for Jesus in that verse, and he says, you know, we can't condemn anyone without first, you know, hearing him to find out what he's doing. And so the Pharisees start to give him a hard time. You know, it's interesting too, if we, if we catch it in our survey, when we get to John 19. So what I love about the progression in Nicodemus' life is he's questioning Jesus in verse, in chapter three, and uh, he's defending him as the truth basically in chapter seven. And then he identifies with him in John 19, because it's Nicodemus who goes with Joseph of Arimathea to get Jesus' body 
off the uh, cross and put him in the tomb uh, in time uh, that needed to happen. And so that was a very public thing that he did at that point. So I love how he goes from darkness into light on that journey. It's very significant what's happening there. And it sort of leads into John chapter 8, where Jesus uh, identifies as the light of the world. And in John 8, in the first 11 verses, um, Jesus is interacting with the woman caught in adultery. Uh, now, that, that passage is, is wrong and uh, should bother you in lots of ways. Uh, because this... See, the established religious community doesn't care about people at all. And Jesus does. And so the, the established religious community is using this woman as a, uh, as a trap, to, as bait basically to trap Jesus. Because they've caught this woman uh, in adultery and they bring her to Jesus. And um, the, the bad thing there is they caught her in adultery, so that means whoever she was in adultery with, they should have caught him too because it was just as wrong for him. So they both should have been in front of them, but this is that Bubba system in place. So they just drag her in front and they don't care about her. And you imagine that it's just a picture of how they didn't care about people at all. They dragged this poor woman in front of Jesus and they basically tell Jesus, listen, our law says to stone her. Um, what do we do? And Jesus, you know, if you were looking at it the way most of us would, if, if Jesus says stoner, um, then he would be violating Roman law, which he couldn't do. And if he says let her go, he'd be breaking the law of Moses. So what I love about Jesus is, you know what happens there. He bends down and he writes in the sand. And, and, uh, and then he says to the crowd, let him who has no sin cast the first stone. Isn't that great? So he puts it back on them. Okay, if, if who, who, any of you without sin, go ahead, toss that first rock. Well, none of them can, and they all have to leave. And I like that you, when you read it, you'll say from the older to the younger because the older people got more sin because they've had a lot more longer to live. And, uh, <laughs> and so off they go. But then he says to the woman, go and sin no more. So, you know, Jesus is never, Jesus confronts sin. He just does it in love. And that's what the world generally misses. We, we, either we, we want to ignore sin, oh, it's not a problem. But sin's a huge problem. Or we, uh, or we, we don't know how to deal with it lovingly, and so people can't respond to it. But Jesus was perfect with it. People love Jesus. They want to be with him. But he, he would always call sin for what it was. He just treated people like they were people, and then they would want to start to make changes. Amazing how he did that. So he's just being light into these situations. That's what he's doing there. He's just light into that situation, pointing out to people that they got no right to judge her because they're all sinners as well. Then he says, in effect, I am the light of the world and uh, in, in uh, verses 12 through 20. And then he, uh, in verses 31, let me read 31 through 32. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So no one is really free if something has them in bondage, sin, fear, anxiety. Uh, but, but, and the Pharisees were claiming in that passage earlier to be free, but they had been, the people of Israel had been in bondage throughout their history because they had always gone their own way instead of gone God's way. And they'd always walked themselves right back into into slavery and into bondage, into captivity. They kept doing it. We've studied this, you know, 
a lot. We've talked about it a lot, the exodus and God setting his people free and freeing them from oppression and slavery and telling them how they were supposed to live so they never had to go to it again. And they, they, they barely got away from it before they wanted to go back to it. And that's kind of the cycle that happens. And even now the Pharisees are in bondage and control. They're oppressed by the Romans. And then uh, this is one of the big I am statements. Remember I said John uses seven miracles and seven I am statements in his gospel. John eight fifty eight. I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. And that was a big deal. And they didn't like him saying that because he was claiming to be God, in effect. He, he was letting people know that, that that's what that was all about. And they just hated him all the more, the Pharisees. They wanted him dead. So they would continue to plot for that. John chapter 9, uh, the, uh, the big dynamic here is Jesus healing the man born blind. Let me read you the first seven verses. As he went along, verse 1 of chapter 9, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told them, wash in the pool of Siloam. Um, And uh, that word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. So, big question. The the disciples actually believed, as everyone did culturally, that somehow suffering was connected with sin. So if there was something like someone born blind like that, somebody must have sinned. They figured for that to happen. So was it his fault, this kid's fault, or his parents' fault? And Jesus said it's neither of their fault. And, uh, um, you know, sometimes, sometimes some of that mess is the result of the, uh, the evil one. But sometimes it's just living in a fallen world on a broken planet, sin messed everything up back at the fall. So it's a change of thinking and that needs to happen. And uh, uh, if you, you know, like if you, if you remember, uh, we've talked about it, the book of Job in the past. Um, the evil one is the cause of all that suffering, not sin. So there's, there's stuff goes on there, but it, it's, you can't, you know, pin it down to this happened, so this happened. And that's what Jesus tells them. But the bigger picture in what's going on is Jesus healing the man born blind while he's talking about being the light of the world. So he's the light of the world, and now this healing that John includes in this narrative is the proof of that. And uh, it's a creative miracle. So this guy had never seen, and Jesus heals him so he can see, and it's pretty significant that he does it with dust, because if you remember, dust was used when man was first created. And so he's made, John is making a very big point for people to see in the process. And so Jesus takes some dust spits on it, makes a little mud pie, puts it on the guy's eyes. I've often said to you, if you're going to spit on anybody, they better get healed. (laughs) Or you should refrain. Go with a different prayer. (laughs) So the blind man sees. And the Pharisees hate it, and they question him, and they question him some more, and they actually kick him out uh, of the entire deal just because he got healed by Jesus. And uh, so the, the big story there is that the Pharisees' pride had blinded them spiritually. And pride 
blinds a lot of people spiritually because they just refuse to admit that they desperately need Jesus. And they get stuck right there. So he's the light of the world. John 10, we, uh, we see Jesus as the good shepherd, which is cool. All of the great leaders of Israel, most of them were shepherds. By that, Moses, Jacob, Joseph, David, all shepherds. Jesus was a shepherd. The shepherds were the first to arrive at Jesus' birth. Um, um, so there, there's a big history of them happening. Uh, Jesus is the door of the gate or the sheepfold. And, and uh, that's interesting too. The, the sheepfold was a place where the shepherds could put their sheep so that they could catch a little break. The shepherds themselves, they were safe. It was a safe place. Uh, it would be a walled place. There'd be somebody else watching the gate. And, uh, and then when the... When, so what's cool about the sheep following the shepherds? When the, so there'd be a lot of sheep in this thing. But when the shepherd came to get his sheep, his sheep would know his voice. And only his sheep would come out after him. Isn't that cool? And that's how they did that. And so that's when Jesus talks about his sheep knowing his voice and they'll follow him to picture that. John 10. 10. You've heard this one. One of my favorite verses. I say that about them all. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. John 10, 27 through 30. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Verse 31. Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. So, there you get the big dynamic. The Pharisees are upset about his claims. At the same time, they can see these miracles that are taking place. So that the, the, the sad thing there is that when Jesus is coming for everyone, but he's coming to the house of Israel. He came there first, and they rejected him, but he was coming to help the Pharisees get reconnected. And they had every opportunity, like Nicodemus, to see and to be changed. But they, by and large, refused. And it, and it wasn't that they doubted that what was going on was God's power at work. They just hated the package that it came in, and so they rejected it outright. That's the hardness, the spiritual pride, the blindness that, that is causing the problem and uh, what their issue is. Then, John 11, uh, the raising of Lazarus. So, you know, you would think this would get everybody's attention, right? You know the story. Um, so uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were siblings, and they were Jesus' good friends. He, he, and so they were a family. And uh, Lazarus gets very sick. Mary and Martha get message to Jesus, come quickly. Lazarus is sick. Um, and even though Jesus is very close by, he takes three days to get there. He's never in a hurry um, for lots of reasons, but we struggle with that because we're mostly in a hurry. I'm talking about patience this weekend. Uh, so I've been looking at that. But, you know, I've read through the Scripture over and over again. If you find a spot where I'm wrong, let me know. I never see Jesus going faster than a walk anywhere. How about that? No account of Him running anywhere. Now, I could, maybe I missed it. I've read it a lot. I never see Him in a hurry, ever. So, it's just not in a hurry. And uh, He shows up, and Lazarus is dead. And uh, he's been entombed and wrapped in 
the, the cloths that they would wrap him in and put in the tomb. And uh, he comes and, uh, you know, they're crying, Mary, Martha. John eleven twenty five. Jesus says to her, Mary, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. There's another big I am statement. I am the resurrection and the life. And then the raising of Lazarus happens in verses 38 through 44. I don't, I don't have those verses here, but you can read them. But I like the way that Jesus calls the name Lazarus. If he hadn't put that caption on there, they'd all come out. <laughs> How about that? So, and then there's something important at the end. Uh, Caiaphas, who's the high priest, verse 49 through 50, uh, he says, Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up, You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. Now, he was saying that. He was thinking about the physical ramifications, but he he didn't understand because he was blinded to the spiritual implications of the, the thing that he's actually saying. And then John chapter 12, we'll finish with this one, this chapter anyway. So um, it's, it's mostly about the triumphal entry. Uh, Jesus is anointed in Bethany by Mary. This is the sister of Martha and Lazarus. There's another time when Jesus uh, is anointed, his feet are anointed. This is a different uh, time. This is by his, his friend Mary. And then um, the triumphal entry is taking place. The Passover is drawing near. And so he, he moves on to um, Jerusalem. Remember now, he's the, Lazarus had just been raised from the dead and everybody's talking about it. That happened in front of all of... There was a lot of people that saw that. And so they're all talking about this Jesus who just raised this Lazarus from the dead along with everything else. And that's why there's this big crowd of people going into Jerusalem and they're cheering him on the way in. 12 through 15, the next day the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it as is written, do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion, see your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. So they're saying, come, you know, now, now what, what is the crowd wanting Jesus to do? Because they turn on him really quickly. So what are they thinking he's going to do? He's coming in and he's going to overthrow the Romans because they know he, he can raise the dead. This is, overthrowing the Romans would be nothing. For, and they know it. They've got it figured out, see? And so they're expecting him to do that. So they're, all right, he's come. That's what we've been waiting for. And when he doesn't do it, they turn on him just like that. Even with everything else that they've seen, they don't do it. But they're, they're, they're crying out Hosanna, which is um, uh, from Psalm 118, 25. 26, O Lord, save us. That's Hosanna. So he's basically saying Hosanna. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord be blessed. So they're quoting a psalm again uh, in, as to what's happening. And the king was coming into his own city and they had a picture of that happening. There's a verse in uh, the whole donkey thing is in Zechariah 9.9. 9. I think I put that on the sheet. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout. Daughters of Jerusalem, see your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So if you, if you ever wonder what that's all about, it's tying in perfectly prophetically to what Zechariah is saying. But he came not for a coronation but a crucifixion and that's, how, that's why they leave him. Uh, 
He was, wasn't coming for a crown, but a cross. Got a crown of thorns, but not what they were expecting. You know, the other thing that I think is fascinating, I'll end with this. So throughout the history of Israel, from the time that they first started having a king, remember, God didn't want them to have a king. That was, he gave them that because they kept asking over and over. He said, you don't want a king. They're just going to treat you badly and tax you. No, we want a king. We want to be like everybody else. So God relents and starts with Saul and then David. And then, um, you know, then it falls apart from there. And the tribes are, it's a big mess. But here was a requirement for a king. It's in Deuteronomy 17, 16 through 17. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you you're not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Kings, were, the kings of Israel were not supposed to acquire horses, wives, gold, and silver. And Jesus was the only king to actually ever fulfill that requirement. Everybody else, every other king did exactly what they weren't supposed to do. They all got lots of horses, lots of wives, and lots of, lots of gold and silver. And they were told not to. Jesus is the only true king of Israel, and he proved it by being the only one that could live up to that part of the deal, which is pretty cool. Anyway, that's just, we're surveying through the Gospel of John. That's enough for today. If you're watching my video, thanks for watching. Come and see us when you get a chance, and uh, God bless you guys.